Hello, and welcome to ContraPulse. This is Julie Valamont. This episode, I sit down with fiddler Becky Tracy. Becky has been a defining presence in some of the most popular and innovative contra dance bands to come out of New England, being the fiddler for Wild Asparagus and Nightingale, and she has performed for dance events and concerts in about 40 states across the U.S., as well as Canada and Europe. She continues to play with Wild Asparagus, Eloise and Company, and her duo with her husband, Keith Murphy. Becky has dance music in her blood. Her grandparents and parents were active in the dance scene, and Becky began playing for contra dancing in Maine, bending her early classical training to the demands of dance music. Later, she studied Irish fiddling styles and French-Canadian fiddling. All these elements combined to give Becky her distinctive clarity of tone, a rhythmic attack owing much to French-Canadian playing and the melodic quality of Irish music. Becky is a popular fiddle teacher at camps and at the Brattleboro Music Center, where she and Keith teach Celtic music classes. In our conversation, we discuss her trajectory from math teacher to full-time traditional musician, her approach to musical creativity in her various bands, her musical partnership with Keith, her teaching philosophy, the ways the community builds upon itself through tunes. We reminisce about that irreplaceable feeling of returning to your home dance hall, and much more. Let's dive in. Thank you. 
Well, hello, Becky Tracy, and welcome to ContraPulse. It's my pleasure to be here, Julie. I am so excited about this. It is so lovely to have you here. Thank you for joining us. I believe we're both in Brattleboro on this blustery November night. Yes, we're not that far away from each other at all. Yeah, but the audio is better, ironically, over the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was noticing that tonight is the night of the hard frost, I think, like the real frost. Supposed to go down to 23 tonight. (sighs) And uh, I went around and like picked the last like couple flowers that were still around in the garden and tidied up and stuff. And this is the time of year when it's always great to go to a dance hall, you know, like in New England, it's like cold and dark. It's definitely dark by the time you drive to the dance, but then you get there. And I remember like pulling up to like the Concord Scout House and you hear the fiddle music even from the street because the windows are open miraculously and the strains of the fiddle music. And then you open the door and this, the rush of hot, humid air (laughs) that comes out of the front doors. You know, um, my, my, when you say that, that thing the first what I think of it were like the first dances that I went to sort of as an adult really on my own when I was really on my own and that was in Maine and going up to the Bodenham dances and I remember going in the winter and we'd go by the ice fishermen that were on the you know were there on the water as just before coming up to the hill and they and you'd and the light would be spilling out of the hall and then and then the music would be spilling out of the hall and exactly the same as you were describing the heat and humidity as you entered the hall that's so evocative you know and it's like the 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 fall the late fall can be kind of gloomy uh-huh. And the contrast between like, you know, we're all a little cold and creaky and maybe we're tired after I day 15 minutes in that hall with just that feeling of joy and energy and movement. And it's like it's like an emotional hot tub. <laughs> Is that a thing? Like all of a sudden you feel warm and happy and just all that concentrated joy in one place is amazing. Yep. Sometimes, like, I feel like fall fall and winter are my favorite times to contra dance, like, to me, when it's cold outside and warm inside. Maybe not for everybody, you know, but for me, they're always my favorite. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I am so excited to hear a little bit about kind of your backstory and how you ended up playing for Contras. I know that it was part of your family growing up, but uh, why don't we start from the very beginning and talk about how you... Uh, started playing fiddle, and then eventually how you found your way to playing for dances. Um, so uh, in my family, um, all, I have four sisters, and I am the, the fourth of the – so it's five girls. I'm the fourth of those five girls. And um, everyone played an instrument before me. So uh, there was always this desire – to be like them because they were much older than me. And, um, and, um, but I had to wait. I, I knew at five, five years old that I wanted to play, but it, but I had to wait until it was introduced in the school. And, um, and so, uh, 
you know, I just, I did the thing that a lot of people do. They grow up playing through the school system, taking lessons, doing recitals, the whole bit. And so, um, and, and, you know, and I finally had a really lovely teacher in high school. And then uh, when I went on, off to college, I also had a, an amazing classical, all classical. But mm -hmm. I wasn't necessarily a great classical player. I loved playing. I was totally one of those ear people who would cheat you know, and learn the music, like I'd kind of follow along on the page, but I would be learning the music by ear and mm. then, and, you know, so, so I, I'd sort of get it as the orchestra was forming, <laughs> doing their stuff. And then as I got to know it because of my ears, then I would be able to play it. So, so the connection to playing by ear was, it was always there. Um, when I was in about middle school, I mean, I also grew up dancing. So, because mm -hmm. my, my dad was calling and he was calling for like Girl Scouts and mm. the local um, schools and, you know, just little community dances. And um, I would just, I would always go to those. He would he would drag us along, and sometimes he would have a band. Not very often. Most of the time, he had his, you know, cases of seventy eights and his record player, just like so many of those callers did. But um, but the bands that was that was something that was um, it was sort of a there was a formative mo moment when I was about 16 and Welling and Wallach were playing Bill Welling Will Welling and Bill Wallach and mm -hmm. um do have you heard of those guys before Will I've heard of Bill Wallach <clears throat> but not the mandolin yeah. player and Will Welling yeah. is now in the Albany maybe Albany area he plays plays fiddle um and uh and and I sat in with him once when I was 16 mm. and it kind of changed my whole relationship to the music there was there was this moment of sinking in to playing whereas before that my I would read the music out of a book you know and then my dad would like well Hey, here's how this here's how it goes, and he would like put Don Messer on or something, and I would do the sort of eighth grade storm out of the room, slam the door. I can't play like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was a pretty um, that was a pretty formative moment playing with those guys, and realize I just kind of somehow I just sunk into what they were doing and was able to play along and the, the, you know that joy of when all of a sudden you can play with people and mm -hmm. you feel like you can do something. It's pretty amazing. Um, so I didn't start playing for contradancing until after college. I had, you know, I went dancing I went to Nefa. I grew up going to Nefa. 
And then I went to Nefa as an adult, which was totally different. <laughs> mm-hmm. Where did you grow up, by the way? I was in Connecticut. In Connecticut. But okay. my, my grandma, um, my grandma and grandpa Bemis, Josephine Bemis and Chuck Bemis, they were in Natick, Mass. Mm. And they, they, he also, he called dances and she led Girl Scout troops as well, teaching dancing. And when she was in her 80s and 90s, she did senior groups, you know, to like young people. That I mean, that's what she called them. They were in their 70s, but she was <laughs> the senior groups. Um, so uh, anyway, they were in Natick. And so we would always go up because she was in Natick. She, she helped get Nefa to Natick. Oh, interesting. That was, that was one of the things that, um, that you know, that, that they were able to do because they lived there, I guess. I don't know. Because it was years in Natick, years and years. Mm -hmm. So as a young kid, I went up there and, you know, we would watch all the dancing and we would, um, you know, go watch my my grandma's Girl Scouts and, you know, go eat great food. And and then when I went back as a college, past college, when I was, so when I was living in Maine, I went to Nefa for the first time on my own. I don't think I ate. Were you too busy dancing? Yeah. I don't think I slept yeah. either. I was too yeah. I was too charged up. <clears throat> wow. Yeah. Did you have friends there and stuff? I had I had friends just like, you know, that greater recognizable contra dance community, but I kind of went on my own, yeah. you know? Yeah. Right, I did. But then you meet like your dance folks. So you kind of recognize them and you maybe have someone who you always ask for a dance. Exactly. You know, that it's kind of thing. That kind yeah. of it was that kind of thing, yeah. Anyway, it was so it wasn't until I was in Maine that I started actually playing for contra dancing. What finally got you into it? <laughs> I went to a contra dance and to to like I was in a new community. So what do we do when we're in a new community? <clears throat> I went to a dance to, you know, meet people to dance to have fun and um i was dancing with this guy and he said so do you play an instrument (laughs) i said yeah i play the violin (laughs) (laughs) and um he's like oh you know i go to a lot of sessions would you want to go to a session (laughs) so this was michael connelly who is a uh piano player and boron player and uh dancer clearly and he uh he dragged me around to any irish session i w- was willing to go to or any 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 kind of session but a lot of irish sessions and um and also the you know dances and whatnot mm-hmm. um and before you know it i wasn't doing a whole lot of dancing uh-huh <laughs> I still go, did go to dances, but then, you know, there was the bands that formed and, yeah. Yeah. And then you somehow learned to play fiddle tunes. Yeah. At that point, uh, I realized how much I just loved it. I just, I sunk into it mm-hmm. immediately and mm-hmm. w- 
was learning, I don't know, zillions of tunes. It was amazing. And he kept feeding me tapes. He would give me, you know, Planksty and the Bothy Band and Dedana and, you know, just all these great bands and uh, just have me listen and listen and listen. So I was pretty obsessed. And then I moved to Vermont and um, and met more, of course, more players, more amazing players. Mm -hmm. um, just lots of people there. Um, Walter Weber was a was a fiddle player up there who who um, not a lot of people know about, but he had a really beautiful style, um, and he uh, he had played with the Green Mountain that group. What were they called? The Green Mountain. Uh, they were dancers and musicians. Sam Bartlett played with them. Yeah, it's slipping my mind at the moment, but I know it's come up in previous ContraPulse episodes. So if we can't remember, we'll link to it in the podcast notes for our listeners. But uh, yeah, because they traveled in Europe and stuff, and he did some of that. Um, but he was he was up there, just a beautiful player. And I got to play with him in a band there. So that was pretty fun. And that was only... You say, where in Vermont was that? You say up there, because we're also in Vermont. This must be a different part of Vermont. <laughs> well, Julie, what you don't know is that's the real Vermont. Oh, yeah. Uh, we don't live in the... According to them, we actually don't. Yeah. We don't really live in Vermont. We're kind of... No. We're kind of down in Massachusetts, you and I. Totally. We're an extension of the valley. I remember the first time I went to Alaska and we landed in Anchorage and the people there said, you know, the best thing about Anchorage is it's only half an hour from Alaska. <laughs> and I kind of feel like that down here in Brattleboro a little bit. Right. So, uh, sorry, up there in Vermont, I was in Bristol, Vermont, and, mm. um, you know, which is right near Middlebury um, and not far from Burlington. So just a whole host of really fine players up there. Mm -hmm. um, but then, but then I moved to Connecticut after that, slightly kicking and screaming, um, mm -hmm. down to the quote gold coast. And, um, but you know, anywhere you go, there's, there's that musical family. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so down, down in Connecticut, there was the Fiddleheads and, um, and they had been going a long time. Um, and I think, you know, are still going in some form or other, you know, they've had, they were the kind of group cause they were based out of New Haven. They were the kind of group that would sort of just taking people as they came through the Nehaven community and then mm -hmm. would move on. Um, <clears throat> and th they were great players. Ellen Cohn played the piano mostly. Beautiful, really beautiful piano player. Um, really fine. Yeah. So that's that was sort of the the back path you know, kind of my my learning experience of playing for dancing through all those, yeah. you know, pretty much amateur, you know, amateur bands. 
that were just looking to have a great time playing for dancing. Mm-hmm. That's the way to do it. Yeah. You know, just play. Not really high stakes. Free to just be there and be in the music and be with the dancers and try things and, you know, learn as you go. Exactly. Yeah. Doesn't all have to be fancy. Although sometimes it's fun when it is, but that can come later. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then somehow you ended up in some of the most seminal bands in New England. So what happened? How did that all come about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this. So what happened? I I had all, those years after college. I spent those years um, teaching math. And so that was the move to Maine was to, you know, it was for a math job. The move to Vermont was to to follow a guy, <laughs> but still there was a math job there. Same with going mm -hmm. to Connecticut, you know, uh, and found a great, a great math teaching job in Connecticut. But um, I was, every summer I would play more and more and more. And I was, in the meantime, taking lessons. I spent some time with Lisa Ornstein, and I spent mm. some time with Brendan Mulvihill. And, um, and I, and Eugene O'Donnell. And, um, and I was, every summer, like, just so much more immersed. And then I'd go back to teaching, and you can't really teach the way one wants to teach and be a performer fiddling mm -hmm. or, you know, if like, if you really love it that much, you can't mm -hmm. like do both of those things in, in a super big way. Teaching is, a, you know, like if you want to, if you want to have a career doing something, maybe it's being a postal worker or something <laughs> that doesn't, where you don't have to bring your work home so much. Right. Yeah. Right. Teaching can be very all-encompassing. Yeah. I was a teacher, too, for a long time, and it felt like my time was never really my own. Exactly. Yeah. Because you'd come home from work, and then you'd have more work to do, and yeah. you'd also be exhausted, and yeah. you'd want to play theoretically, and yet you didn't have the energy. I, no. I mean, ironically, I feel like at least for me for the last 15 years, being a full-time musician has also been all-encompassing and my time is never my own, but my time is always my own in a sense in that, you know, just because it feeds me so much and I enjoy it. So it's, it's funny. It's the same, you know, the stakes are different and there's a whole lot of differences. But. It's all-encompassing, but in effect, you have control over it, even though you right. might not think you do. <laughs> right. You actually do. It Right. Even if you might say, oh, past self, why did you need to schedule these things so close to each other? Did you forget that you need to eat and sleep? You know, but we still have control over how we schedule those things and how we make our choices. Yeah. And then we learn in the future, we make our schedule better for next time. We try. Sometimes. We try. <laughs> and then something comes along and it's just too good to pass up. That's right. That's right. Um, so, so, so you here I am teaching. So, so, so there I was. Yes. I decided I, what I decided there was, there was just that last year, the first day I went back to school, I knew that something had to give. And mm. early on in that year, I, 
I wrestle I wrestled with it and then I just decided, okay, I'm gonna take a year off and I'm mm -hmm. just gonna try this thing. I'm gonna you know, I can tutor math, make a little bit of money that way, and I can I can just see what I can do. And um so I did that. I took the year off and I did the ridiculous thing that so many of us do, which is to drive many, many miles for tens of dollars. <laughs> and seriously, yeah. tens of dollars. I mean, I remember one trip coming home with $12 in my pocket, you know, and I'm sure I spent at least that in gas to, <laughs> to get to the gig. But, and there was also the, for me, a challenging thing was to call people up and say, would you like me to play for your dance? <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and, or would you like me to play with you? Because I was just, I didn't, you know, I, ha I was playing with the fiddleheads, but I didn't really have a band band. Mm -hmm. I was just going out there. Um, so a couple of things happened the summer before I, um, I met Bo. Well, I had met Jeremiah a few years before when I was living mm -hmm. up in Vermont. Um, I remember one particular Champlain Valley Festival playing, jamming with him and David Surratt and wow. just loving it. Um, so so he, he was there, you know, sort of mm -hmm. it just as a person I knew. And then I met Keith at a Pinewoods um, just a, he was, he was there all summer and I just went to a 4th of July. And so, mm -hmm. and then I met him and then I saw him again at a, another Champlain Valley. So, so those two men were in my consciousness, you know, um, Keith and I sort of shared, you know, shared, uh, a, some tune learning when we were at Pinewoods. Um, and those boys had started to team up and play with different people. And they mm. um, they had played with Vivica and they were playing with Carrie, a lot of a lot of Carrie Elkin. They were a, a part of the mm -hmm. Fresh Fish gang. Mm -hmm. And they had a gig in the in New York City and they didn't really want to stay in the city. So they came to stay at my house before they went in. And so they um we we jammed late into the night. And then they mm -hmm. went off and did their gig. And that particular weekend was a big weekend for me because I had a gig with Eugene O'Donnell down in Philadelphia. And I just had this little tiny spot in the in this concert. It was like, you know, one of those Mick Maloney, Eugene O'Donnell Lots of big Irish players, but I was going to play this um, downfall of Paris with Eugene to this cathedral full of people. So it was a big, that was a big event for me. And I was all, you know, sort of flurry, a flurry of excitement um, mm -hmm. around that. So I came back for my gig, you know, just full of that event and the boys decided to come back to my house after their event and we played more music 
And in the meantime, they had said they had been sort of nattering in the car and <laughs> were saying, oh, we need a fiddle player for that event down in North Carolina. Maybe Becky can do it. So it was it was one of those old fiddleheads um, fiddleheads weekends that happened down um, down in North Carolina down in the Asheville area Black Mountain and um, so they asked me if I wanted to do it and I was like of course <laughs> and so then we then we you know then we spent time uh, becoming a band essentially. You know, at first we were mm -hmm. preparing for that gig, um, but then there was the amassing of tunes, and then, you know, it was like, oh, well, Keith is, you know, these songs that Keith has, let's let's back those up. Okay, let's, let's make a tour. Let's not just go to this weekend. Let's, like, drive down and have a, a tour, and let's play concerts on the way, and, you know, the thing that happens. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. The thing that happens. It went well. <laughs> it was awesome. Yeah. 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 Um, it went well. And um, and as a result of the tour, Keith and I got together. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, that was, that was the end of teaching. That was the end of, yeah. the, that was the end of that life. A new life was, was on the way.
Stuart Kenny and um, Jeremiah suggested me to Ann to Ann and the Wild Asparagus guys as mm. a potential because they were at a point where Sue was going off to do her Sue Sternberg was going off to do her dog training stuff mm-hmm. and so um so they were kind of looking and um i remember my um i remember two things that were kind of funny the first was there was a there was a a dance that i was playing at the grange with mary Kay and um my then husband jim search on penny whistle and banjo and um and Stuart was there, of course. And um, and all of a sudden, there was somebody in the audience, somebody out there. The band was like, what's she, what's she doing there? What, what is that person doing there? You know, is she in her pajamas? And I had no idea who they were talking about. But during the break, she came, she big capital S H E came up on stage and it was Anne. And, uh-huh. <laughs> and she said, you know, we're looking for a, fir- a fiddle, fiddle player. And so, um, so she invited me to a party and that was my audition was the party. Oh, fun. Yeah. So it was, I, I got to go to their house and it was a great party, you know, with lots of tunes and lots of fun. And this is the house of Anne and David Cantini. This is Anne Percival and David Cantini. Yeah. Exactly. Was this the house that they built in the woods? This is the house they built in the woods. And this was, yeah, this was that house. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So it was a big session in their house. And, um, and, and, uh, and they were, you know, I, I don't know exactly how it all, how it all, happened but somehow there was definitely the sense of i was gaining approval from whoever was there i have no idea (laughs) it was very funny a very funny way to be auditioned for a band (laughs) well it's pretty organic right like that's the folk way to do it just jam and see if it works and see if i mean you know, having a good hang is as much important to a band as anything else, right? So if you can, yeah, if your bandmates can throw a good party and have a good vibe, that's yeah. a nice thing. I think the other test that they put me through was when they first brought me on the road. Um, we were playing, you know, we were up on stage. I think it was somewhere in Texas or it might have been Texas. It's so funny how... I, yeah. Anyway, it might have been Texas, but it might have been some nearby state. Anyway, there we were playing, and um, all of a sudden the band drops out, hmm. and it's my turn. But I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know this was going to happen. All of a sudden, off I off I went. So that that was another test. They wanted to make sure that I could, you know. Hold it down. Hold it hold it down a room full of dancers. And let me tell you, I had never done that before. Wow. <laughs> it sounds like kind of shocking and a little terrifying, but also kind of exhilarating once you do it and realize, oh, I can do that. 
<laughs> yep. Yeah. So in that year, there it was in that year, I stepped off into the big void and there was a safety net. By, by January, I, I had essentially, you know, I had met the Nightingale or met Nightingale as it was going to become, you know, mm-hmm. we sort of decided we had a gig. Our first gig was in mm-hmm. May. And um, not long after that, I was starting to play with Asparagus. And that essentially was my was my musical dance career slash life for the next 18 years. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't often happen that way for people. How old were you when, like that year, seminal year when this was all happening? <laughs> I was 30. And the reason I know that because I gave up teaching, right? And I, mm-hmm. to mark that 30th year, I hiked the long trail. And so oh, wow. 30 leaving teaching, hiking the long trail is in, is embedded in my brain. Otherwise, I'm not sure I'd remember. Wow. It's so interesting. Like I, I mean, my story is not like yours, but I came across contra dancing when I was in my 20s but I started playing for consciences when I was 30 you know like I don't know it's a fun time for a life shift like in your 20s we often think we know who we're gonna be but then in our 30s we're like oh actually Uh my life could be this whole other thing instead you know I feel like that happens for a lot of people well there was a certain amount of stubbornness that carried me through college and the first part of my career like this is what I set out to do And damn it, that's what I'm going to do. Right? Yeah. And it's hard to, it's like hard to walk away from all that. And you don't always necessarily want to. But also we're kind of programmed sometimes to do things and it can take a while to change up the way we're thinking about stuff. And like you say, you just stepped out there into this whole other world and it's been your life now. It has been my life. And, you know, there's a certain amount of full circle now, especially because of the pandemic, uh, in the teaching vein, that I mm. had been a teacher all that time, and teaching has always been like part of part of my fabric, you know, of the stuff that I've done through all this all this time through all the contra dancing and stuff. But now it's a little bit, as you can imagine, more, and right. um, and it's incredibly satisfying. So it's kind of, it's a little, now it, now it feels even more blended. Yeah, because you can take those skills as a teacher and use them to share this thing that you love so much. I mean, so many fiddlers who I talk to, just I'm meeting them and like, oh, who do you learn from? Or who did you learn from? They're like, oh, Becky Tracy. Oh, I learned from Becky. Like you've taught some amazing fiddlers who have gone on to form their own bands and play all over the country and do all sorts of stuff. And that's really neat. Well, it it, it has it, it's definitely um, an amazingly satisfying thing to see them perform, and to also play with them occasionally. Mm-hmm. That's really fun. Just a little bit. In fact, just wait. What what day is this now? This is Friday, Monday night. I had my first gig playing for live contra contra dancers. In a while. What? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. It was, um, so it was for this very small group who has spent the h- entire fall together. So they're, 
definitely mm-hmm. a bubble. And it was their last. Yeah. It was their last night. And my student Rose Jackson was was with them. You know, she was doing work for them. She was part of that bubble, and um, she hired me to come and play for dancing. And so, of course, yeah, we invited her to to play along. And and it's just it's just a big treat to to play. You know, with your very competent student. <laughs> Yeah, Rose is a wonderful fiddler. Um, dancers, listeners might know her from the band Polaris most recently. I'm sure she's played with other groups. She, yeah, more more informally, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Oh, that's so cool. What a cool feeling. I mean, maybe it's similar. Uh, do you play, you play music with Aiden, your son sometimes, right? Is it Oh, there's nothing, feeling? actually, there's nothing quite like that. Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, I mean, you know, there's the parental side. We all love doing doing things with our children. And when we get to do something that we love so much and share that with our child, it there's no, there's just no comparison. Mhm. Really. Yeah, and your family sounds pretty rooted in folk dancing and traditional music. Were there any other fiddlers in your family? Like, did you ever play with any of the elder members of your family? Or were you kind of the first one? I was kind of the first one. My -hmm. grandmother, who played mandolin, played, like, Red River Valley. Um, (laughs) Mostly things for singing, you know. And, I mean, she had been part of a mandolin orchestra back in the day. So it was a whole other thing that she did a long time ago. Um, but but she wasn't a dance musician. She was mm-hmm. she was playing for just, you know, singing along and the old the old songs kind of stuff. Um and like my dad played harmonica, he was just, you know, it was just for pure joy. And he played mm-hmm. the flute, but that was he wasn't really playing the flute. Yeah, I mean, he was it was it was a completely recreational thing so so no one else in my family even though they all played an instrument nobody else played for dancing how did they react when you became a full-time dance musician oh well I think there was a a little (laughs) you know so I had this nice degree from college right (laughs) I think there was a little bit of what (laughs) <laughs> Are you kidding? But the reality is both my mom and my dad became my biggest fans. You know, they yeah. they would come like they they would come to the Guiding Star Grange in Greenfield um and watch me dance. They went to a couple of dance weekends um and had the best time. So, yeah. They they, and they love this thing that you were doing. They so. love that. And my dad, you know, really loved f- fiddle music so much. So he was he was very much into it. He he wasn't necessarily as into um like the Nightingale recordings. He was like, "Well, I guess I guess people must like that. It's a, maybe a little more artsy or something, but you know, where's the fiddle? (laughs) 
He was a Don Messer fan, right? Is that what you're saying? He was a, among other things. He was a Don Messer fan and a Winston Scotty Fitzgerald fan. Um, I mean, yeah. He liked he liked serious tunes. Yeah, with charismatic fiddlers, right? Where the fiddle is definitely front and center. Exactly. Not hidden behind that big accordion. <laughs> <laughs> or some cool riff. Right. Or multiple cool riffs. Right. Oh, that's funny. It is funny. So you've done a lot of teaching over the years, you know, at camps and festivals and being a program director and running like Northeast Heritage or other camps or private lessons. Um, what are the most important things for you when you're teaching? What do you like to do or communicate with your students? Mm. <laughs> and to be clear, not we don't always have to have those things all spelled out as a teacher. You know, you it's like you do it by doing it. You teach it by doing it and playing music together and teaching tunes. Often the lessons are within the tunes that we teach. So you don't have to have an answer to this necessarily. Okay. So you're going back to your specific question. It was, what do I like to communicate to my students? Yeah. Um, okay. You know, one of the things I talk about them, about talk about with them, and I don't even talk about it with them. It just sort of happens usually. You, you know, we, we learn through tunes and we learn techniques through tunes, but then eventually there's this greater community that starts to show up somehow. Now, Keith and I teach Celtic classes, so often I'll funnel some of my students into those classes because in those classes they find other like-minded people and people that mm -hmm. they can go off and play with. And outside of class, they don't have to just come to class to play. Mm -hmm. And my when I feel like I've been successful is when my students end up playing either in other bands or they have their little group that they've formed that meets every Friday night at somebody's house and just jams and has a great time. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's of course, there's of course lessons in, um, in just, as I was saying, technique and mm -hmm. making it good dance music and all that stuff. But really it's about connecting with others and having this really beautiful way to be with other people. And of course, a really beautiful way to be with other people when perhaps you're, a shy person mm -hmm. and a person who doesn't really, you know, get out there. Um, so that's a big, I mean, that's for me, maybe it's not what I'm trying to communicate, but for me, it's certainly a measure of success when that happens. Yeah. Like that's kind of the center of it. So perhaps in that sense, like technique and repertoire are like the means to the end of, you know, being able to participate in this community and make music with other people. Right. Right. And of course, there are those players who just want to be really great players. Mm -hmm. You know, 
and uh, and that's fantastic. That's a really fun. <laughs> that's a really fun challenge. You know. Yeah, and so then you, I mean I don't know enough about fiddle technique to really talk about what you might do with them, but I'm sure you talk about like what kind of technique things do you focus on mostly? Oh well, it kind of depends on where they come from, right? Exactly. So. So I have some players who are more on the kind of advanced beginning end of things and maybe they maybe they've fallen in love with tunes and they've learned a whole mess of them but they can't really make them sound very good. And so mm-hmm. those people are going back to essentially violin technique just to make mm-hmm. gorgeous sounds on the instrument and and be able to make these tunes speak rather than kind of creak. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, but, but then to the other end, I'll have, say, maybe a classical player who wants to now learn how to play tunes and kind of needs in some ways to undo a little bit of technique to mm-hmm. make the tunes come alive. So... There's in in like a lesson lesson situation, you know, where it's one on one. That's the the scope of what's happening. Um, my way of teaching is through tunes. Some people are more um, maybe exercise oriented, and I'll develop exercises with my students when techniques in tunes are unreachable and they need more practice to to reach those or maybe there's like a lot of arpeggiation in tunes and they need that or maybe they want to learn chords and then it's time for some arpeggios and chords and stuff. So um, I don't have a, like a method. I teach, you know, each student as they come, it's like, it's really fun because it's like this puzzle. It's like, What's going to work for you? Mm -hmm. And being able to like sort of read what somebody else needs and respond to them is it's like a subtle but really important skill as a teacher, right? Because then you can connect with what they need and give everybody something that makes them feel excited. Yes. And each student teaches me Mm -hmm. because... Um, in that process of figuring things out, you know, I learned, I learned something new and they'll often come to me with, oh, I just realized that if you do this with your hand, you know, like if you put your pinky on the bow in this way that you can get a much better tone. And I might've said almost exactly the same thing every single week, you know, Uh but all of a sudden there's a new focus. They have new words to describe it. They've made it their own. So of course now they now they know it. But um but sometimes but often their way of looking at things will help me, you know, with another person. I'll have like more vocabulary because I can see that, you know, the people out here, all my students, they see the world in a different way than I do. <laughs> <laughs> that's really great 
Ah, oh, such an exciting feeling to watch somebody have a breakthrough and then you learn something and just Yeah, and your particular fiddle style. Um, you know, like when you're talking about your influences, a lot of Quebecois influences and a lot of Irish influences. Are those the two main influences in your playing? Yeah, I'd say so. Cause I yes. Absolutely. Besides like the general technique that I got you know, that was built into how I play. Cause I mm -hmm. feel like when I was, when I was in the ninth grade, my bow technique was completely revamped by a, my, my first private teacher. He just, hmm. in, in a classical, in a class, it was a classical setting, but it was because of the way he taught me to bow. I don't even know what mm -hmm. I was doing before that. I can't tell you, but but he he had this very specific technique. I would come in to to his studio and he would plop me in front of the mirror and we would do this thing called the jellyfish in front of the mirror. <laughs> and what did that look like? Yeah. So so what? so the way the jellyfish looks is that your wrist is leading the bow all the time and your tentacles are your fingers. And um and so the tentacles, the fingers kind of flow along behind and then the wrist is still leading and yeah, exactly. There you go. And so that was the, the basis of all bowing from him. And he had some pretty interesting techniques that, and I remember the aha moments. I remember like two major aha moments, one with him when he grabbed my bow <laughs> to make me get my my hand in the right position. And another, when I was like looking at the mirror on my own practice and I was like, oh, wait, look, that's my teacher's hand right there. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so his, that, I feel like that had a lot, that has a lot to do with kind of the sound it's only it's only because um people have talked like students have kind of described my sound to me that I've started to like really pay attention to it as being mm -hmm. like having like a little bite the sound always has a little bit of bite at the beginning of it and then it, yeah. and then it kind of has a tail it has like a a bite and a bit of sound but then a tail it it doesn't it's not like a flat sound and mm -hmm. I really feel like that his technique plus like the French Canadian with that very, like there's certain players who have a really strong, I think of Daniel Lemieux as one of them. And uh, there's many others, Andre Brunet. There's like, you know, a lot of people like this who have this really strong single bow power that they can produce. Um, and I, I think it's like trying to emulate that. But then there's the sort of smoother Irish stuff and, you know, and somewhere in between is my style. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it has the lyricalness. That's not a word. The lyricism of Irish playing, but that bite and the bounce of French Canadian playing and that little bit of like the rawness, you know, like party time rawness i don't know how to describe it but that little crunch to it grunge but then the grunge tone, the grunge <laughs> the grunge <laughs> great 
<laughs> and then the tone that you got from your classical playing, like all together. Right. Um, which is amazing. I mean, it's like, I don't know, like when I was learning to dance and I was watching bands and I would just sit in the hall and watch all these bands that I love playing. And obviously, you know, Nightingale especially has been an inspiration for so many people, but whatever band you're playing with, you know, Wild Asparagus, also a big inspiration. Watching you play and looking at your face, you just seemed like you were enraptured most of the time. Like your, your fiddling just like encapsulates so many emotions, but joy to me being this one that just stands out, you know, you can have a lot of different feelings and you play, but it's just such a joyful, it's like you're flying. I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah. And it it certainly feels like that sometimes, you know, it definitely, yeah. And you have the band to ride on. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. And what band, you know, like how great to ride on those bands it's fantastic mm-hmm. yeah yeah what are some moments do you remember moments where you felt like especially just in tune with everything and especially ecstatic on stage <laughs> yeah um i i i do actually there was there was some there was there was some um a Falcon Ridge of time with Nightingale. I don't know what was happening, but it was, it was like one of these late night. I know it wasn't, it was the middle of the day session and we must've just been completely like open and just going because we could do no wrong. Hmm. You know, like it, it was pretty, it was pretty incredible. It just felt, it felt not only was the band playing really well, but the response, the, the, the dancers knew it and, mm-hmm. and they were feeding it so that it just made it better. And that's, I mean, yeah. I can think of a lot of places where that's happened. Like I remember with Wild Asparagus once in the Northwest where we just, we, a camp that we went to year after year, right? So people would look forward to us coming back to this camp and, you know, we'd start to play and they would just respond, you know, in a way. And, and then you're like, you're feeling that love. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's amazing when, uh, all these things come together and it's like we're all set free when everything like syncs up together and everyone's just there and you can really get to this like higher place. I don't know how else to describe it. But it's like it's like you're channeling the joy that's in the hall and then you're sending it back out to them and then it's it's just I don't know. It's amazing. It yeah, it is amazing. Um there was one time at Pine Woods when Kathy Bullock was there, it, it must have been a harmony of song and dance. It must, it must have been that. Um, so Kathy, Kathy Bullock was there doing, doing her stuff, and and so she was, she was on the piano, um, and we were doing like some. Keith had, you know, figured out that some French Canadian tune could be the underpinning of this gospel song, and. 
And so, like, you know, we started off and there was this French-Canadian bubbling tune. And then, you know, and then she starts to come in and then and then she takes off singing. And I have to I have to say, like, my whole, you know, it's like my whole spirit just <laughs> exploded. <laughs> completely exploded with that that was one of the i mean i think it i think maybe i mean it's true that that she she could do that to me anyway right her singing is mm -hmm. so incredible but with people on the floor dancing and people on the floor dancing and singing this mm -hmm. you know like rocking out you know not just singing but like belting it and then yeah. this other tune simmering underneath um, kind of felt, you know, felt amazing. That's incredible. I wonder if there's a recording or a video of that somewhere. Do you think that anyone happened to capture that? My guess is that we were all just sort of in it. Yeah. You know? I mean, at camps, we, we discourage recording because it keeps you from being in it. So, right. you know, I wouldn't be surprised. But you just remember those moments. And those moments can feed you like years and years later, you know, they don't or they inspire something else that happens. So even if you forget that the original moment happens, maybe the next week you write a tune or you, you know, have an especially good rehearsal with your band or, you know, a joyful teaching session, they pay it forward. Although I would still love to hear it. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, I, I would, you know, and, and the reality is, if I heard it again, would I think it was as good as, as when I was in it? You know, mm -hmm. there we were all in it, just all being there singing or playing or dancing or all, you know, whatever. And, you know, our memory is big and fantastic. But if we yeah. if we actually saw a video of it, what would we think? Or a recording? <laughs> yeah, I guess part of that feeling in the moment is just being amazed that it's happening at all, right? Like, this thing has just happened out of the ether. And the visceral feeling of, like, the vibrations of the sound waves in the room and everyone there and the the spontaneity of it all. And when you watch a video, you don't have that context. You know, you can't capture that.
would love to talk a little bit about bands and nuts and bolts and arrangements and things like that. Um, oh boy. Yeah. Cause uh, you have several bands that have arrangements, you know, there's, you know, Nightingale, Wild Asparagus, there's Eloise and company and you and Rachel have some lovely arrangements. You know, it seems like more in your collaboration. This is a uh, Rachel Bell, the delightful accordionist and uh, piano player, stealth piano player for a long time. And now, public piano player, which I'm personally thrilled about. Um, and it seems like you and Rachel, that project is just that the, you love playing together so much. And there there are arrangements, but they don't seem to be like the, the point in the same way. I don't know. What would you say about that? Um, so the thing, the thing that Rachel and I have discovered is that we love to dig deep. And we also, we also have discovered that we, we, we have given each other permission when we, pl when we like sit down to create, to, to really kind of go out there and play badly, really. I mean, <laughs> to just, honestly, you know, it, it, we don't call it that, but it's like the trying of stuff. It's, it's like, there's no, there's no judgment in there. What the judgment is, is, oh my God, that idea was really cool. Let's try that again. You know, let's, let's see if we can make that happen. There's something super cool in that. So the thing that we do to make it happen is we record a lot when we rehearse. Mm -hmm. We, you know, so we'll sit down and kind of, we actually, we actually uh, have, we've come up with, I, let's see if I can remember what it is that we talk about. Um, we make the palette, and so the palette is that stuff, all that stuff that we, you know, so we, like, play and play and play, and there's this idea and that idea and, you know, all these things that we could do with mm -hmm. a tune. And then we make a path, mm. and we kind of, like, well, what makes some sense of what we could do here? And then we take out the chainsaw. <laughs> Is that the editing part? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We're, we have to be cruel and take out some of our favorite things to make it m make more sense and make it, you know, people be able to listen to it. You have to kill your darlings. Yeah. And so that's like, that's the path of, that's sort of what we do to make, to make arrangements. And to make, you know, things for concerts or things for recordings or stuff like that. But we also, um, uh, we have, we have explored recently more of, you know, you know, like when, when Rachel and Karen get together, they will play. This is Karen Axelrod. Karen Axelrod. Yeah. So Rachel and I have explored recently by having gigs that are just kind of like background music. Mm -hmm. The uh, the concept of just playing, we're like, oh, we're actually good at this. <laughs> <laughs> we can do this thing of just playing. We might not venture quite as far as we do in rehearsal. Yeah. You know, we might not be quite as daring, but um but uh it's it's really very very satisfying. Yeah, so I mean I think all the bands that I've been in have been arrangement bands. Mm -hmm. Nightingale was a big, big time arrangement band. Mm -hmm. And we would, 
we would craft and, you know, wrestle with our arrangements and go away from them and then come back and have them have tunes, you know, rearrange them, do them in another order or with a different tune or with a different concept. And there was all, you know, it was, it was, um, it was definitely a fine tuning of, of, um, arranging in that band. Um, and we also had some, there was like one time where we had kind of a, a retreat in a way with Gray Larson mm -hmm. and spent time, you know, figuring, you know, Gray has his, his own head about arranging. That's amazing. And he had a lot of influence on sometimes when the moon is high mm -hmm. doing with that work. <clears throat> and Gray strikes me as a musician who really likes those small details and, um, exactly. Yeah. That very, yeah, that crafting. Yeah. But asparagus as well, when, um, when we rehearse, there's definitely, you know, there's, there's some stuff that is just kind of like, here's our beginning and then we're, our transitions are going to be this, this, and this, and here's our end. And so, you know, so there's some sets of tunes that are like that, but to make it into kind of like the, the sets that are you know, kind of, kind of are more polished and the sets that we want to pull out, you know, for the bulk of the evening. Mm -hmm. Um, those are the ones that we spend time, you know, more time on and we figure we're figuring stuff out and riffs and, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of different elements going on. Because like one approach, I think that actually works well as like a hybrid format for contrabands is just to plan out how you're going to start something, how you're transitioning to the next thing, and then how you're going to end. And then in the middle, you can riff on that. And, you know, um, like that's what I ended up doing in Buddy System with Noah. And most of the time, some sets we have are really arranged, you know, but like, but for a lot of things, just knowing how you're going to start and then transition, those transitions could be so important and magical, right? If you get it cleanly and clearly and it has the impact you want and in the end but then it sounds like also certainly in nightingale it sounds like you guys had a lot of things planned out um yeah and and the thing about dancing is dancing gives you the freedom to mess around yeah right cuz cuz dancing goes on for a while yeah and you can't and, you, know, you can't make an arrangement for a certain length because every caller runs a dance a different amount of time depending on a whole bunch of different circumstances, right? Well, we do have George Marshall in Oh, oh right. I forgot. You cheaters. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, we can kind of negotiate a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> in, in that regard. Um, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of playing around. But, you know, I feel like there's – in some, in some ways, there's almost like two camps. There's there's the camp of the band that's trying to make a shape out of most of their medleys. Mm -hmm. Like they they're trying to define what the shape is out of most of the things they do, and they and and they do that together. Like they they sort of work out how that's going to happen, and then there's kind of like the I kind of take the lead. It's my turn to take the lead. 
And now it's your turn to take the lead. And we hope that we seam them together. Yeah. You know, um, or, and, and, and certainly I've, I've, I've been aware of bands where that's, that's kind of, a, that's an amazing thing. You know, somebody takes the lead and there's this really cool backup thing that happens. And then that backup person can just kind of swell into taking over and that person is taking the lead. Um, and it's incredibly exciting, but it's like, it's like they're two sort of different yeah. approaches. Yeah, I think that's true. Like kind of trading, whether you're trading whole times through the tune or one person takes it twice and the next person takes a solo or whatever versus, you know, the, the concept, the, uh, ah, my brain are getting words. Bare necessities, the bare necessities concept of the passion graph, right? And having this arc that you're trying to accomplish during the arc of a mm. dance. Uh-huh. The passion graph. Yeah. I guess I'll have to listen to that particular episode. Yeah. Well, we have, actually, <laughs> I haven't had a, uh, we, I talked with Kate uh, Barnes, but uh, I'd like to talk to Jacqueline Schwab at some point. Because I think maybe the idea came from her, but this is third hand. This is like someone told me that someone told them that someone told them that Jacqueline thought of this idea called the passion graph. But if you graph the energy of the dance on like an X, Y axis, you know, the shape that your line makes. So there's math. Look, it's all coming together. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, are you going to like go up straight the whole time vertically? Are you going to kind of go up a little bit? I like the arc where then it comes down a little bit at the end and you end kind of gently and swell in the middle. A lot of bands by accident go up and then in the middle they dip down again by accident. Like maybe their transition doesn't work or the next tune's not as good as the first one or the dancers get tired. And then in the end it goes shoots back up for the last time through where you're like, wow, I got to play all the things, you know. So, you know, that concept. Um, where yeah. do you spend most of your time musically? Where? Like between those, you talked about those two modes of being like either kind of trading or arcs. I'm definitely in the arc camp. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm more I think I'm more comfortable there. I'm more comfortable um I'm more comfortable spending my time uh working, you know, not having the audience see me um blast through my stuff. But you know there are certain times when like you just you're so uh motivated by the energy in the room that Things happen. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows what they are? What kind of things happen? (laughs) No, just, you know, you know, just, just lines, you know, like your brain will think of a line over a tune Mm -hmm. and it's there. That kind of thing. Yeah. You know, where suddenly you're yeah that kind of thing your fiddle singing maybe a little too loud over the tune of the band (laughs) but i mean sometimes those are these magical ideas come that we don't even know we have in us right they just come out of that moment and they're amazing and perfect and then if you like save them up collect them all like you and rachel do and harvest them for future times and work (laughs) them into your arrangements you know weave them in 
How many metaphors can I throw in this one sentence? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's funny. It's really funny. Yeah. So did you get everything you wanted on the the nuts and bolts of the band? Oh, come on. There's so many things we can talk about. (laughs) I mean, you must know. Not not to be uh, fangirly about this, but especially in the, the last um, the last few dances of Nightingale, like since then, you know that there are people who have board recordings of Nightingale dances and we trade them around like Pokemon cards or something like really special. Uh, there were a cu- there have been a couple of times where I've been places where um, young people are playing, you know, kind of arrange the, the the whole arrangement of something that Nightingale has done in the past. Like at and a that, dance? that is not that is not recorded. No, no, it's usually a jam session. Ah. I I haven't heard it at a dance ever. Um um I'm I'm the problem is I can't even remember what like what is the name of that tune? Da 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 Anyway, what is that tune? Anyway, there was there was this big arrangement for that particular tune, and it and it I think it showed up maybe on YouTube somewhere or something, but but I have heard uh, people do Keith's exact uh-huh. you know thing and the whole thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> I remember my first piano lesson with Jeremiah. I, you know, it th- we started with basics because I wanted to learn how he thought about accompaniment. But the end, he's like, anything else you want to do? I was like, will you just show me flying tent, please? You know, just please <laughs> show me. Because, you know, I told him I used to take all these albums and slow them down and try to learn things at half speed. And that was the one thing I couldn't figure out. Like I had a decent ear. I could not figure out for the life of me where his hands were, when and how and you know, getting him to show me that, and I like filmed the whole thing. It's in my archives. If anybody wants to pay me fifty dollars, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you the secret. Just kidding. Cheap. No, you could talk to Jerry about that. I'm sure he'll tell you. But but the the something about the arrangements of Nightingale, like they they're so um, they last. You know, like they're it's just quality stuff. I don't. This is why I'm a musician, and I don't use words because. I don't have words for how great these arrangements are, or else I would be a writer and not a musician. Um, where did you come up with tunes and repertoire, and how did you decide to incorporate things like French music into your into your repertoire? Right. So um, we were each bringing whatever whatever influences we had. Mm-hmm. I actually. Like many people during the pandemic, I've been doing a lot of cleaning lately, and I have come across cassettes that say tunes for Jerry or tunes for Becky um, from Jerry. Um, so each of us like had our had our influences, and the same is true with Wild Asparagus. And mm-hmm. also, there's then there's the tune writers, Jeremiah and Keith in Nightingale. Mm-hmm. You know, wrote lots of material and of course David is a big writer. I I've contributed tunes to Wild Asparagus and of course Rachel Bell is an amazing writer mm. in in our band. So um so the French thing 
in Nightingale, at least, was Jer- was certainly Jeremiah's influence mm-hmm. at that time, because he he was really he had been delving into some of the French music. Um, I don't know. You'll have to ask him for more about that. Uh, more about that. Um, but um, but it, but we were always just sharing the tunes that we knew and, and you know and it's like yeah there there was this explosion of material where these tunes were going back and forth from um of what we had you know just known in the past and then as time went on people would be writing stuff and so we would be you know trying to incorporate those tunes more and more as nightingale went on mm-hmm. and the same is true in asparagus Asparagus has really taken on a lot of Keith tunes because of the whole Caribbean. Yeah. Right. So the, um, that whole thing that's somehow that's been very inspiring for Keith to write tunes. And David has happily jumped on board and, um, I'm a little bit more reluctant (laughs) (laughs) to do that kind of group, you know, uh, we're going to write a tune every day and then perform it every night. Mm -hmm. So uh, that doesn't happen quite as much for me. But um, uh, Asparagus has has really been happy to suck up those those tunes that that Keith has played Mm -hmm. or composed. Yeah, because you spend that time in St. Croix together every year. Yeah. And then it's kind of like a band retreat in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Another perk of being in a band with George Marshall is your caller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A retreat, both in the sense that there we are in this amazing place, um, and a retreat in the sense that we're going off and writing tunes and then coming back and having to make them into music, mm-hmm. you know, into stuff for dancing right away. Yeah, it's it's like an intensive or, you know, like having something to play every night and having free time enough in the day to write a tune. Like that doesn't happen necessarily when you're at a dance weekend or on tour or something, depending on your schedule. Being in one place for a week where you're just all with each other, that's a, exactly that's a great environment to make music, you know. Absolutely. And there's, you know, cocktails on the beach. Doesn't hurt. The new tune of the day. That sounds fun. Sign me up. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah.
question. I don't know how to ask this. Like, I want to ask your approaches to making medleys, but you've made so many different kinds of medleys in, in all of your bands, you know, there's not like one particular formula. Um, but what's your approach when you're putting tunes together? What's our approach when putting tunes together? Or what are your many approaches? You know, like you've got some things where it starts out mellow and then all of a sudden, bam, it hits you in the face, right? The transition okay, so, or so, yeah, things that it, build um, in intensity. Yeah. What is our approach? It's kind of funny because in some, so in some, it varies from band to band because of course I'm not the only person. And so everybody in the band has, you know, has input in, into what, what they want, um, how they want a medley to go. So mm. for but one thing that is true is that all the bands kind of have, that I've been in, have had kind of s- types of tunes. Like, t- you know, so, to, so mm-hmm. there's been like, well, these, you know, kind of keeping, uh, Asparagus doesn't play that many French-Canadian tunes, but the other bands would have a French-Canadian-esque sets of things. And, you know, maybe smooth slinky jigs but then maybe the more party chunky kind of jigs you know so depending what what the caller was asking for you'd know where to go look and um and then maybe there are like the in nightingale we always had like the enders the big sets yep there were a there were there were a few of those that that just kind of, and they were the ones in fact that were you talking about the pow where something would happen and mm-hmm. there would be a big change and and you know, all of a sudden you don't realize that it's three people on stage because there's, you know, Jeremiah's all over the piano and there's this big mandolin thing and feet and all that stuff. Um, yeah. So, and, and Rachel and I have a, we have a section that is, we call headbanging French tunes. Where you kind of yes, uh, <laughs> how do I describe this motion? It's head banging. Yeah, Becky is actually <laughs> head banging on the screen. <laughs> Back to the grunge. Back to the grunge. <laughs> yeah, um, and and wild asparagus, we we do kind of the same thing where we have like a you know we have sort of the Irish reels and we have sort of different kinds of of sets of things. We have our one tune wonders. We have things that have the bombard. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, there's definitely different feels for, you know, different, different types of tunes. And I don't, I'm trying to think, so how does, how do we as wild asparagus decide that one tune sometimes is going to be it? And that's all you get because mm-hmm. is it just because there's enough to say with that one tune, you know, or there's mm-hmm. a groove that's compelling enough or you just don't want to change because it's so much fun to stick around with what you have in there. There's enough going on between maybe a riff and the tune itself that you can just play with that. Mm-hmm. And you feel like that's an, an, a, sort of a complete experience for the dancers but then sometimes it's more like you're just playing tunes 
you're just, you know, tune after tune. So you might as well have three tunes. Yeah. So she was like the Irish tunes. I feel like that's yeah. the thing to do. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about Wild Asparagus is just this this groove, this mood, this like you're in a place. It's like one concept, one dance, you know, and you just do the thing. Then there's the occasional pow, but the pow is like the bombard comes in instead of like the entire arrangement changing. You know, it's like a different way of doing some of the same things. It's also true, though, that Wild Asparagus is known for the like the dropping out. There's one time. You drop out. Yes. I mean, the, the the backup band drops out, right? And you've got just fiddle and flute, or just maybe just fiddle, just flute, something. And then the band comes in, and it's something else. The rest of the band, you know, like a, yes. a whole other. That's true. That is that is one of the that's one of the signature sounds I think of Wild Asparagus. There's the side of the you know the groove, and you just stay with it through the whole dance, and then there's that other side. Yeah, a lot of these signature sounds are things that a lot of bands now kind of take for granted, but, you know, there was a time when this was all new, and, you know, before that it was like play tunes and harmonize with the tunes perhaps and have medleys, and then all of a sudden you have all these bold arrangement ideas kind of coming out of the Well, woodwork. you know, that's the thing that's so amazing about um, about contra dancing and the contra dance music is that it's so open to so many different ideas. There's people who are swingy mm -hmm. in their approach. You know, there's people who are very straight and they're doing, you know, what you just described. The tune and harmonies mm -hmm. and it's beautiful and fantastic dance music. There's Mm -hmm. super solid, beautiful umpa piano, you know, that keeps you right where you want to be. And then there's the the grooves and the, you know, um, the really inspired, inventive piano styles that are out there. So it's kind it's 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 open. The 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 parameters are rhythm right? That you keep really good rhythm and you keep the dancers knowing where they are somehow. At least that's what I like. <laughs> <laughs> it helps. <laughs> uh, but within that parameter, you have so much freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If the rhythm and the phrasing are there, you know, then you can do anything else you want. Um, what did it sound like the first couple of years when you were playing with Keith and Jeremiah? Did you start arranging everything from the beginning or were you, you more like playing tunes from the beginning and then kind of got into that? We definitely started arranging from the beginning. The r arrangements were simpler. Mm -hmm. And I think our, our mm -hmm. recording, you know, The Coming Dawn reflects that, that it's a simpler sound. But it's also, there was a purity of that that was really beautiful. Um, mm -hmm. and yet there was the kernel, there was always the kernel of arrangement. There was always the kernel of, you know, fussing a little bit, perfecting a little bit, creating, just you making something a little bit different somehow. Mm hmm And there's times when there's this element of minimalism where I feel like you're just playing 
only what you need to play. And, you know, like Keith would do this really, you know, groovy piano, very repetitive riff for the tune to go on top of or something, or just the feet being like Keith's foot style being so constant and yeah. unchanging is like this ground and the arrangements, they just have what they need and they don't have a lot more than that necessarily, you know? Um, so it's like maximalism and minimalism sometimes <laughs> at the same time, right? With, with something like flying tent, you know, that a, arrangement. A little bit of both. <laughs> right. Yeah. For sure. Man, it's just so many ideas. And like when you have each band with people with different backgrounds and ideas and everyone brings ideas to the table. It's like, it's not like you're all making them up on the fly during rehearsal. You know, often somebody has, Oh, I've been working on this riff and you bring it together and maybe, Oh, I've got this tune that goes with this riff and you try to put it together. And then the synergy is how you take all these ideas and make them your own. As a band, you mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. As yeah. a band. Yeah. And it's very interesting how bands, they have their sound. You hear them, and it's like, mm -hmm. well, I know who that is. <laughs> mm -hmm. I feel like for a lot of contrabands, when we have what we call rehearsals, they're actually idea-generating and medley-generating sessions and arranging sessions. Very few bands actually rehearse, which is practice the things that they've already arranged. Because we all find that out when we go to the studio and we're like, oh, this isn't tight. We've never figured out how we do this transition, have we? Or whatever. <laughs> um, do you have bands that you have like rehearsed with and actually like, practiced with? Like in, I imagine that. In fact, all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all of them. Yeah. Concerts are a really good motivator for for rehearsals. Yes. Dances are less motivating because, it, as you say, it's like that idea generation. Maybe you get the beginning, middle, and the end figured out, but you kind of let the rest happen mm -hmm. during a dance. But then when you want to put that in front of people who are sitting down and really, really paying attention, it's a, it's mm -hmm. a big motivator for actually rehearsing. And so all the bands have rehearsed probably because of that more than anything. There's, right, so there's recording and there's concertizing that makes it happen. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's the once in a while you're in a recording session and you go, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't quite right. <laughs> <laughs> then yeah. what do you do <laughs> okay I think we're going to do this one tomorrow <laughs> yeah let's uh, break on this instead of spending our money in the studio rehearsing this right now and figuring how it's going to yeah. go right I mean just like teaching is a good way to learn things and to reveal what you don't know the best way to know what you don't know is to try oh, yeah. to teach it the best way to find out the little gaps in your arrangements or your technique or to try to record something, right? Because you will find out real quick the things you haven't figured out that you've been fudging this whole time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, um, I say to my students, I, I say it over and over again, and really very few take me up on it. 
I say, if you want to know how well you're doing on this tune, you should record yourself and listen back. <laughs> yeah. And and um, I love it when somebody comes to me and says, oh, my God, <laughs> I just spent like an hour trying to record that tune, you know, for somebody. Yeah, maybe the exercise isn't even only about the listening back. It's also the making yourself record the thing. And then as you're playing it and focusing on it, you learn just through that. And then also yeah. through the listening, you know, like. So I think bands should make demos before they make albums. Just practice recording together and listening back to it. Because like recording as a band is a skill all in and of itself. And your album music will be better if you've already kind of got the skill out of the way before you get to the studio, right? Yeah, but, but, but you know, going into the studio time and again, you forget, <laughs> which is probably a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> you forget how much work it is. It's, it's the only reason that lets us make that more we forget. It's like having right? babies. Isn't that the joke about like... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You you need to forget what childbirth is like so that you do it again, right? <laughs> How much sleep you lost yeah. that first year. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And you've made a solo recording. 20 years ago. Um, and Wow. Are you ever going to do You know, it's one? funny. Uh, a couple of years ago, I started, I started to pen out what I thought I would do. I went on a little retreat and I, mm -hmm. you know, I tried a, a bunch of things and, and I, I had a whole mess of ideas, but I think I might've lost a little mm -hmm. confidence somewhere in the, on, along the way. It's a big, it's a big step that the making, the making mm -hmm. of a solo recording, I feel really great about Evergreen. Um, and I feel like it's like sort of stood the test of time maybe maybe that's a way to say it mm -hmm. but um but there but one thing about doing something like that is that um then you feel like you want to you, you want to at least meet that mark with your next one yeah and yeah. um you know so uh i think it was the same thing with Keith and i making a duo album after after being mm -hmm. with Nightingale all that time, we started our duo album pretty soon after Nightingale broke up. But mm -hmm. it was hard to birth it. <laughs> yeah. You know? uh, and I'm so glad we did, but it was it would it took a lot of it took a you know, sort of okay. Do you, was that at all affected by the fact, did you record that at, in your yeah, home studio? Did, yeah. Am I remembering that right? So that you can kind of work on it uh -huh. whenever and however, uh -huh. <laughs> which uh -huh. is a blessing and a curse, right? <laughs> yes, ma'am. It's a blessing and a curse because, because you're not paying the big bucks. Paying the big bucks is really motivational. And, and sure in is. that defined time of being in a studio is also motivational. Keith is amazing in that he is he is able on his own to plow through and do solo recording after solo recording in the studio 
in our own little studio and and just kind of mm-hmm. do do that. And I'm really impressed mm-hmm. with his ability to do that. Pretty amazing. He seems quite he focused. Certainly can be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, your musical partnership with Keith is such an incredible thing. You know, it's like lasted all these years through all these different settings. You know, you've played together as a duo. Like I've seen you play for dances as a duo and you've been on his albums and he's been on your albums. And, you know, you've been in multiple bands together of different styles. Um, What's that been like? I don't know. I don't have a sophisticated question for this, except that's cool. (laughs) You know, but like... How right. is, how is... It's all right because we're all kind of like all in, right? Yeah, we're, you know, family, you know, house. We're business partners, you know, musical partners. Um, we teach together. We do some. We do some classes together. Yep. So, uh, so yeah. Um, some of it is is kind of also defining your own time in a way. Like own time is healthy mm-hmm. is healthy time, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like you know, then you come back together and you have at least a perspective on stuff because you're you know because you're doing other stuff. And so um, uh, during the pandemic, we've had less of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I have taken to big <laughs> hikes and uh and he's become an exercise fanatic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I saw him running around Brattleboro not too long ago, a couple months ago when it was warm outside. Yeah, I mean that's important, right? Cuz you need to have your own experiences so that you have different things just to to do your own thing and be your own person, but then also that gives you new things to come to bring back to your musical relationship right. and it's yes and it also gives perspective on appreciation for what we have and Mm -hmm. what we do together Mm -hmm. and how well it works Mm -hmm. but you do have to kind of go away from it to or at least some of us do (laughs) yeah i mean it's like if you're in a room that smells really good, like someone's cooking applesauce or something. After a while, you just smell applesauce and you get kind of used to it. Then you go outside for a walk. It's coming up on Thanksgiving. It's my favorite thing to do at Thanksgiving is go out for a walk in the cold air and come back and the house smells amazing. And you didn't notice it while you were in it because you get used to it after a while. But that first breath of like, this pumpkin pie smells incredible, you know? Yeah. Oh, Keith (laughs) smells incredible. (laughs)
your playing changed, you know, as as you've gone through this like musical journey with Keith and with your other bands? How's your playing changed over the years? Oh, that's an interesting question that I have never thought about before. Um, I think, I think in some ways it has solidified, Mm. you know, like, and not, not, I don't mean in a bad way. I mean, you know, kind of like it's stronger. I can, um, I mean, I guess, I guess back when I first started with asparagus, I guess I could make a whole room of dancers (laughs) dance alone, but now I feel confident in that ability. Yeah. (laughs) I don't feel like I'm going to fall off the tracks any second. Yeah. Uh, I also feel like um, I have been more um, more confident in exploring other, like harmony and exploring my own riffs. Like the idea of a duo, which is both what's happening with me and Keith and what's happening with me and Rachel at this moment mm-hmm. in time because of the pandemic, mm-hmm. is that... I um I feel more like I can bring my own ideas of backup or harmony into those. And I don't feel like I feel like I did it in the past but without as much sense of this is going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you've you have an octave violin, am I remembering that right? Uh, yes, yeah, so now I have my octave violin. I've had it for maybe four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's like a whole new voice. I'm really happy about that. It's just, you know, because it mostly, I do use it for contra dancing a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's like a little coloration change. And it's so, it's so, so exciting. Like those, those wind players who have, or even even fiddle players who have like a mandolin or you know some other instrument that to to play around with you know their their toy, but I often think of wind players, of course, because I'm with David Cantini, who yeah. has his saxophone and his flute and his whistles and his bombard and all kinds of toys to make different timbres. So it's really it's fun to have a different timbre to mess around with. The octave violin is interesting because. Some some people, when they pick it up, a violin, you know, somebody who's never played an octave violin, some people start playing it and they just think lyrical, beautiful, lyrical. Mm. And then other people who pick it up, and usually they are male and young, <laughs> and they will just shred the heck out of it. And it's also fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> not to just not to put any stereotypes on <laughs> I mean you're these, wonder, these wonderful young people you're allowed to see patterns <laughs> well it's you know it can do both things and I think you know I feel like that's some of the magic of your playing is that you can do the most sublime beautiful delicate thing and then on the other hand you could just kind of bounce away on this you know, Quebecois tune with so much fire and passion or this Irish reel and like having all those extremes, like having that little crunch in your tone makes it so good for dancing, right? That little extra, mm, 
Like when you're playing for dancing specifically as a fiddler, what kind of things are you thinking about? What are you watching on the floor? Um, so, I mean, I, I am not specifically watching for things. Mm -hmm. I'm aware of the dancers and there's like that, that sense back and forth, Mm -hmm. but there's, I definitely pay attention to the dances both beforehand and while they're happening in terms of picking tunes. Mm -hmm. Cause I really want dancers to have this experience of it just really going together so great. Yeah. Now, I know that when I'm dancing, I don't necessarily – sometimes I th- I think it's the most amazing thing, but I've also had the experience of just dancing to a band that just plays New England tunes of whatever ilk yep. for whatever dances come up, and boy, is it good. It's great. Yeah. However – you know, I have this bent, you know, this sort of focus of um, of making tunes match dances. And I think it might have started with Lisa Greenleaf because she used to she used to have like a spreadsheet of all the sets that Nightingale played and what the qualities were of those sets and what dances they went with, what kinds of dances. And she had that because our sets were so varied mm-hmm. that she had the experience of things bombing. Mm. And so she decided that wasn't going to happen. So she made it so it didn't happen. And so then I started to pay attention to those ideas. Mm-hmm. And and I usually have a, a lot, I, a big hand in matching stuff to the dances that callers have chosen. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a caller handing me the card before they start or if they have the whole program lined up at the beginning, I can figure out, you know, what order we're going to play our tunes in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if there's once in a while where a dance will happen and maybe it's because the caller skipped a dance or we skipped a, a, a medley and so we're playing something that's completely not going with the dance. I really don't like that feeling. Yeah, what do you do? It's kind of like, oh, you stuck there? Do you try to change? Uh, usually I sit with discomfort for a little bit yeah. to see if it's actually okay. Yeah. Because usually it's fine. Yeah, and it's often drastic to try to change something. You know, I feel like it has uh-huh. to be really bad to try to bail on the original plan. I don't I don't think I've ever bailed, but I have felt the heat rising in my throat <laughs> watching. <laughs> I remember talking to Lisa about programming with Nightingale because, you know, I was in Nor'easter and Nor'easter was a new band and it was the kind of band where callers were starting to give us their programs in advance and we were programming in advance to their things. And I asked Lisa what she did with Nightingale and she said, well, usually now I just started asking them to give me the program and then I match the dances to their musical program. But with with like a musical kind of with a those kinds of arrangements, they flow into each other in different ways. It, it kind of makes the most sense after a while. To do it that way. Right. 
Right. Plus, she knew our music. Exactly. That that well. Um, yeah, that she could do that really easily. Yeah. And, you know, she's a flexible caller with a lot of dances in her repertoire and doesn't necessarily have an agenda for the evening of, oh, I need to call this particular new dance that I just wrote or whatever, you know. And right. so it's just a, it's it's uncommon for a caller in a band to work that way, but it's cool. It can have a really cool effect because now the whole dance is an arrangement, like in a good way, right? It's like, yeah, all those details, and you know, then the band can be at their best, and the caller can be at their best, and the dancers can have a great time, and it's kind of a neat experience, you know. You know who else has done that is um, Sue Rosen. Hmm. I've worked with her where she said, okay, what do you want to play next? Yeah. <laughs> All right, then, you know. And it's fun when that happens because, like, often you have an instinct of, like, oh, I think we should do a beautiful jig right now or, like, you know, so I don't always like planning things far in advance because my instincts in the moment are not always what they were over dinner that night. Right. But in the moment right. – the right thing will usually pop into somebody's head. And I love it when the caller's like, oh, I was also thinking beautiful jigs or like perfect. Our sense of flow is exactly in line. And I love working with callers when our instincts like tend to line up like that. And then we can just be in the moment, but it's like we're planning ahead together, but in the moment, if that makes any sense. Yes, it does make sense. Totally. When you're matching tunes to dances, what are the kind of things you're looking for? Well, of course. I look for the balances. Yeah. <laughs> What's that essential feel? Is it does it feel like it's, you know, like got lots of balances or does it feel like it's, you know, kind of like lots of walking? Mhm. And um, you know, that's like the essence of it. And mm -hmm. then um and then going on from there um uh you know, there's there's other there's certainly other things you for sure but but those are the essences you know like okay i'm gonna you know can kind of put it into two camps <laughs> you know it's either lots of balances or it's kind of smooth and walky and i love it when somebody will say okay this one really needs a party tune or this need you know i like this feel to this particular dance yeah and then you go through your set list and you think about what would be a good fit. Sounds like. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Steve Zakon Anderson felt like that um, he had to have a whole little pile of dances with B1 balances for Nightingale. Uh-huh. That that was a thing. Because <laughs> all your tunes lead, really lead up to the triumphant B1. <laughs> there had to be a B1 balance. Or else it's just, I mean, it is unsatisfying if the tune really drives to the B1, like there's a nice four chord on B1 or something, and then the dance doesn't do anything. It's a little yeah. unsatisfying, so I could see that. Yeah, yeah. Right, and of course, so of course, it's not just the balances, but where are those balances? Mm -hmm. That's 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 a a main feature, because certain tunes ask for balances in different places, or certain arrangements you know mm -hmm. what the band is doing ask for balances in different different places yeah yeah did you ever feel like you had some arrangements that were complex enough that 
it could throw off the dancers if you weren't careful about how you paired them with the dance. No, wait a minute. I know uh, if we if we didn't pair it well with the dance. Um, I know that that's true because mm-hmm. of what Lisa said, but that's <laughs> from a really, really, really long time ago. Yeah. So uh, I'm only taking it on faith. uh um and the only time i really know that we screwed up a dance was when keith wrote a tune once um in the caribbean and he thought it was straight and it was crooked oh well hello Yep, and so he, we couldn't figure out why the dancers were always moving. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yep, and so then he fixed he fixed the tune, but he called the tune the missing beat. Yes, right, because you had to take one out or add one in, depending on how it was. There, I think there was a missing beat. Yeah, so you had to put uh, one in to fix originally. it. Originally, I think that's what it was. You know, like a a cricket tune can feel so normal if it's like a good cricket tune and it just says what it needs to say. You don't even notice. Right. Right. Well, and and Keith has certainly written those tunes that have that feel of being crooked, but they're actually straight. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's certain tunes that are a little bit wild, but they come out in the end. Yeah. 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 Um, how do New England tunes fit into your repertoire? Uh, well, how do they fit in? That's a really good question. I love them. How's that for a start? It's a great uh, start. <laughs> I totally love New England tunes. And it's it feels like something I can always come back to. I actually, uh, it's it's something I I work on them. I actually don't play a lot of them out because of some of the keys. Mm. you know um uh but i but i always love them and some people don't some people who you know think of like you know playing with nightingale playing with wild asparagus like bands that that i you know that i'm not actually into the sort of old new england repertoire Mm -hmm. but i am Mm -hmm. um and, you know, if you asked me for a fa- you did. In fact, one of your prompts was, what's a favorite tune? Mm-hmm. Opera reel comes to the forefront of my brain. Yes. As like a tune, I could always, I could just always play the opera reel and be a happy person. It's just a great tune and it's great for dancing. I love that tune. It's so beautiful and has a great storyline. It's just a great tune. Yeah. It is. Um... And and I have to say, I think in the the with the people that that I have bands that I'm working with, for the most part, we play other stuff and maybe a token mm-hmm. New England tune. But there was a period where not, where um, Wild Asparagus went through this phase for maybe a couple of years where every dance we would have one to, one set of tunes where we just 
created it on on the fly, and it was the rule was it's like a game. Mm-hmm. The rule was it had to be some New England tunes thrown together. Yeah, and that was always wickedly fun. Yeah, stay in touch with your roots. What are some of the tunes that might make their appearance during a set like that? Um, lamplighters might show up. Um, uh, Fisher's hornpipe in F because I like it in F. (laughs) (laughs) Only because I like it in F. Uh, what else might show up? I don't think Foresters would show up, even though I love playing that tune. Um, Sometimes Allie Crocker with with it sort of mm. played A A B B instead of A B B. Um Batchelders. Another nice F tune. Quindaro. Yeah. Lots of tunes. Cause it's interesting. I, I ask so many musicians or fiddlers even, like what what do you think about New England tunes? And a lot of people say, well, I love them, but we don't play them very often for contradances, you know, like, or I love them, but my band doesn't play them. It's like, that seems to be a phenomenon. And I don't know if it's that they don't fit as well to the kind of arrangement treatments that bands want to do with them, or they don't have sexy chords, or their melodies are simpler or different or... I don't know about the melodies being simpler or different. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I think some of them are elaborate and beautiful, and and, and sometimes the chords are sometimes the chords are actually uh, a lot. Like there, there's a lot to them sometimes. Um, you know, I think some bands get a direction. The band becomes defined in a certain way. You know, so there are bands old New England that define themselves as we are a New England band. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, Wild Asparagus went through a phase before my time when they had Carrie Elkin playing mm-hmm. and he kind of shaped the direction of the band into a more Irish vein, mm-hmm. you know, and the band has since taken some, you know, detours but they had started in a very, very New England roots. Mm-hmm. Like their roots were serious New England roots. And and Carrie kind of, sh- you know, pushed them in that direction. And of course, like for David, who plays the flute, that's pretty attractive. Like yeah. Those, those Irish tr- tunes are very attractive. And I was playing Irish music, so I fit right into that. Yeah. Well. Um, so I think sometimes a band has just sort of its defining characteristic mm-hmm. and maybe, you know, maybe we haven't, um, uh, like in, in, in workshops or whatever sort of pushed those New England tunes as much, perhaps. I know at Nahumka, which is Northeast Heritage Music, um, camp which we affectionately call no humka because <laughs> anyway um this past time 
we had this lovely New England whole session on favorite New England tunes. And um, it was great. Mm-hmm. And nobody knew them. They didn't yeah. know them. They were so happy to learn these New England tunes. And and there were people there that I thought, oh, no, uh, you know, I'm going to bring up a tune and uh, these people are going to know it for sure. Yeah. But they didn't. And it was fun. I think <coughs> we did like, excuse me, four tunes or something. Yeah. Yeah, we got to keep those tunes around. Yeah, maybe it's that they, like, they're... Yeah, I don't know. It's just an interesting thing to explore. But, you know, there's also places where the New England tunes are having, are rebounding and very happy. Mm -hmm. For instance, in the Belfast, Maine region. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a whole kitchen junket of Maine tunes and New England tunes, and they're really happy to play. Yeah. Those old tunes anytime. Yeah, the whole main fiddle camp scene. You know, there's so many different genres of fiddle styles at main fiddle camp. But New England, I feel like that's one of the few places where New England fiddle tunes are treated on the same level as the Irish tunes and the Scottish tunes and the, you know, Cape Breton tunes and the old time tunes. And they're just as at, cool. Right. At main fiddle right. camp. Right. Which is. Yep. I mean, I don't know. Did you ever feel in a performing setting, like if you're touring and you're a band from New England, did you ever feel like New England tunes are perceived as being like less cool when you're traveling versus like Irish tunes or French tunes or things like that? It's funny because I haven't, I, I haven't, um, I haven't thought about that. Yeah, I mean, it's a weirdly leading question to ask you, and I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that I'm trying to imply that people think. I'm not trying to imply that people think New England tunes are less cool, but I'm just trying to sort out in my head why it is that so many contrabands love New England tunes and don't play them. And I think it's like you can grow up as like an Irish fiddler, or you go to Irish sessions or French Canadian sessions, but there aren't a lot of like New England sessions in most right. of the country. In New Hampshire, or there are places, or Massachusetts, or like David Kaner's dances. There are lots of places where those things could happen, but maybe it's just not an identity that a lot of fiddlers grow up with as much, you know, because maybe there's no like Natalie McMaster of New England tunes or like. You know, when you some people, it's like river dances or first exposure to Irish music. But whatever it is that it turns you on to a certain fiddle style, maybe that doesn't happen for New, New England tunes in the same way. I don't know. Well, you know, there is so there is this phenomenon of like Celtic, right? The word Celtic, you know, with its fancy C yes, and everything, of course. has a, it has a real. There's there's definitely. The mainstream person knows what you're talking about. Yeah. Right? Um, but New England fiddle tunes, even though I live in Vermont and mm-hmm. and people hear fiddle music, the average, you know, New Englander isn't really going to associate with what that means. Mm-hmm. And maybe in the past they did because, you know, there there used to be the fiddle contest. That used to be a big thing. Yeah. All over the place, there used to be a lot, you know, a lot more um, of those happening and people going out to them. And um, I think fiddle music would, you know, people would have identify more with that. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so I'm actually looking a little bit more broadly, but I think it affects our musicians as well, right? Mm -hmm. I'm looking at the, the populace in general, and you're looking at why do bands not play so much New England tunes? Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you this, Asparagus has been getting together not to rehearse, but to play tunes mm. lately. And the tunes we've been playing have been a lot of New England tunes. Mm -hmm. We've gone sort of, we, I mean, we mix it up. It's this big slice of kind of wild asparagus from its roots <laughs> to the present. And, you know, it's uh, sort of like a game in that we each get to choose whatever it is that we want to play and we're allowed to start any tune that we want to start um and and those new england tunes have been showing up a lot yeah they're fun to play they feel good when you play them yeah and some of them like the irish american reel feel good when you finally get them <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, I mean, there's finger twisters there for sure. A lot of squirrely yep. tunes in the New England fiddling repertoire. Yep. So do you have any thoughts about, like, the future of contra dance music as a living tradition? And, you know, like, you've seen it change so much over the decades. Where do you think it might go? Or what are your thoughts okay, so, on tradition? So um, my experience, right, I'm just I'm just going back a little bit, right? I'm going back to look at what my experience with the New England contra dance music has been, and or contra contra dance music, and I've seen that it seems to have. There's always bands that are sort of really rooted in the old, and then there's bands that are trying out all kinds of things. Um, and what do I think about the future? I'm going to be a, a, a very interested bystander, but I do think that probably we'll have some bands rooted in the old and, the, and then other bands taking in whatever from either mainstream or other influences there are and creating, you know, new cool stuff for us to dance to. Mm -hmm. And they're both good. Did Did you ever like think about tradition or worry about whether something was traditional or not when you were thinking of arrangements or trying out new things? You know, so in both bands, before, before, before starting up with Nightingale and Wild Asparagus, mm -hmm. the bands that I were pl was playing with were, far more traditional mm -hmm. um, for the most part with maybe a tune or two thrown in from players of the band. Right. Um, and that's, that's like as untraditional as we got. <laughs> um, and when I joined these other bands, I was kind of the one who maybe even knew the least about contra dancing. I mean, I went contra dancing, but I didn't I didn't even necessarily know all the the bands, you know? I had mm -hmm. been to Swallowtail once. 
I had never been to a wild, a wild asparagus contra dance mm-hmm. in my life before I joined the band. Um, so I wasn't necessarily in the know. And I mm-hmm. think I was following the lead of other members of the band who were far more experienced than I was. In some ways, I had experience, right? I grew up dancing. I had right. lots of experience. But in, in other senses, I didn't really know the scene as it was mm-hmm. at the time, the big scene. So I didn't think about that. And do I think about it now? Like, is it traditional enough? Or no, I, I don't think about it now. I mean, sometimes, no, I don't, I don't think about that. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I want it to be good for dancing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a living tradition, right? Is that you don't have to think about it. But keeping that essence of having it be good for dancing, you know, to me, maybe that's the traditional part, right? Is that it just still has to serve the purpose. I don't know. But your music brings joy to lots of people in so many different forms. It's just amazing. And this has been so wonderful to talk to you. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? Hmm. Is there anything I want to talk about? Is there anything that needs to be talked about? I just want to say, there was one thing about talking about venues, places that Mm -hmm. we've played. And you you had that prompt. Yeah. You know, like, is there any favorite place? And, you know, and I thought about how amazing it is that I get to go to the Caribbean every year. Right. And play there. And there's sea breeze. I mean, it's, it's incredible to play mm-hmm. in the Caribbean, but you know what? There's nothing like playing in the guiding star range mm. at your home dance, you know, with your home people. Um, it's an incredible feeling. Mm. I think that's the one thing I wanted to say because because I was th- I was I was sparking I was like thinking about all these sort of amazing things that places that I've been able to go and people I've been able to play for and wonderful communities that I've been able to go back to and play for them and it's all it's all incredible but then coming home mm-hmm. is really wonderful and I really look forward to that, you know, to playing there, especially again. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. That feeling of home, that home dance, what an amazing hall and space to be your home dance, you know, like, yeah. Right. So great. Yeah. So many things have happened in that hall. Like the, the, the floor and the walls and the ceiling are steeped with <laughs> memories and energy and, and everything else. Yeah. A favorite thing of mine to do is, is to go and like find Ray Bolt's various um, videos that he has. Yeah. In that hall from various times. Yeah. And, um, and, 
Yeah. And it just brings me back, you know, like before they did redid the walls. and Right. When they still had that mural on the back of the stage. Yes. Right. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I love the mural. I mean, it's so beautiful now. The stage is gorgeous. But there was this kind of quaint folksiness about that mural. It made it easier to sit on stage and watch, which is one of the things I loved about that hall. It's one of the few places where you could sit on stage behind the band and kind of hang out. And that was okay. And something about the folksy mural made it easier to do that. It didn't feel too fancy, you know? Right. Yeah. Yep. It's a very welcoming spirit. But, of course, the hall is gorgeous and wonderful and welcoming now in a different way. Right. Exactly. <clears throat> accessible. Yes, it is accessible. <laughs> yes, they put in wheelchair lifts, and I've watched a few people using them, including myself. And that's what – how can a dance feel like your home dance if you can't get to it? You know, like accessibility is such an important part of building a community. It's necessary. And so that's also great. Kudos yes, for that. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. Well, this has been delightful. Thank you, Julie. Well, thank you so much, Becky. It has been so wonderful to talk to you. Thank you for being on ContraPulse. You are very welcome. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to ContraPulse. This project is supported by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society, and is produced by Ben Williams. Thanks to Great Meadow Music for the use of tunes from the album Old New England by Bob McQuillan, Jane Orzakowski, and Deanna Stiles. Visit contrapulse.cdss.org for more info. Happy dancing!